can edit this later and just pick the one that's appropriate. It's already funded, and charging down some cool stretch goals, or Last year, it was funded much more quickly than this, so everyone, get out your pocketbooks. Yeah, do your part. Buy war bonds. I mean, the <laughs> catacomb badges. Grow Liberty Cabbage. Live from the dangerous map room in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 39 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about using maps in your campaign. But first, the party plans an epic heist in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the Pathfinder finds her way to the Character Creation Forge. So I am contractually obligated to remind our listeners about Akatakon. That's part of what made me a special guest. Oh, okay. Was my willingness to shill it. There's no money. No. It's, no. no. <laughs> or dignity. <laughs> I have neither. <laughs> I require neither. Yeah, so the Kickstarter went live last week, but because of our recording schedule, it hasn't actually gone live yet as we record, so I don't know how well it's doing. I bet it's doing great, and I would like to invite everybody to come join us. It is November 11th through 13th in Dayton, Ohio at the Dayton Convention Center. This is a regional convention hosted by our friends over at the RPG Academy podcast. I will be there. Don't let that scare you away. (laughs) (laughs) This is the only way to get a badge for the con. So if you're interested in going, please go ahead and sign up on the Kickstarter. We've got another reminder. We are looking to review Dungeon Master's Guild material because there's not really a consistent rubric. So it's very difficult to find stuff that's actually good. And even if it's free or pay what you want, you still need to download it, look through it, weed through it. It's, it's just very complicated. So we'd rather do it for you. Yeah, we would love to recommend some great quality content on the DMs Guild, push a larger audience to the creators that are doing good work, hopefully line their pockets a little bit. So if you have any content that you found that you like, please send it our way. You can drop us a line at totalpartythrill at gmail.com or let us know on Twitter at TPTCast. So earlier this month, there was another Unearthed Arcana. I think we should talk about it because the month is almost over. Hey, it's better than last time. That's true. (laughs) So this is Gothic Heroes, and I'm guessing it has something to do with the fact that Ravenloft came out. It is a hot topic nowadays. So you get a new sub-race, the Revenant. What is a Revenant? It's the Crow. It's a character that has died and then has come back from the dead in order to fulfill some sort of goal or avenge something. Yeah, and there's a DMG creature called the Revenant who is quite a pain, (laughs) if you will. Uh, When he targets a PC, it's going to be a nightmare. And this new subrace is similar. You get a small constitution bump, and then (laughs) your DM assigns you a goal. usually has something to do with the way that you died or the reason that you died. And until you fulfill it, you always regenerate up to half your hit points. And if you die, you just come back after 24 hours. Although if your stuff is destroyed or someone takes your stuff, you don't get it back. So I do like this as a second pass at a character. Your PC is on his mission. He dies. This gives you a great way back to not have to build a new character or whatever. You could just come back as a revenant. I kind of like that. It gives you a chance to finish your character's arc. That's true mechanically though not so great right it's either so when you do complete your goal then you die the dm has now given you this thing where well you know you're going to complete it because if you don't well you come back in 24 hours right and when you do you're gone yeah so like i said it's a good way to make sure you finish your arc (laughs) yeah but you know at level six if you come back as a revenant you're not playing a level 20 campaign yeah right i Mm -hmm. mean the your character is going to be gone in a couple arcs i could see a player being like oh man i missed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got away yeah. <laughs> i can find them again it's not a problem i always know where they are oh man so first thing he does is get killed by his allies <laughs> <laughs> well 24 hours yeah and then, and then within 24 hours they go and kill his enemy <laughs> mission accomplished <laughs> all right so there are two new classes in here as well mm-hmm. there's a fighter that should have been a ranger Yeah, there's the Monster Hunter. It's got superiority dice, but they have very limited use. But they're cool uses. They are cool uses. And then it has this Hunter's Mysticism, which lets you use Detect Magic and Protection from Evil and Good. Gives you a language. And then Monster Slayer, which we really like the mechanic of this. I think we were discussing it. 
one of the ways you can use your superiority dice is to add damage to a roll. And you can do that after you've already rolled damage. So yeah. Like, oh, it's yeah. not dead? Well, oh, I'll add some more damage. Then. Right, exactly. Does that kill it? <laughs> is it dead yet? <laughs> a monster slayer at level 7 lets you expend two of your superiority dice at the same time in order to add to the damage roll. Right, and because this is done after you've not only hit, but after you've rolled damage potentially, you'll know if this is a crit. Right. So anytime that you crit, you've got this ability to roll four extra dice on your damage. If they're not dead, use it. Just right. use it. Right. This gives you a little bit of paladin burst damage, right. which is super cool. And if they're aberration, fey, fiend, or undead, you deal max damage with those dice. Which would then be four <laughs> times max damage on a crit, which is paladin crushing it. Right. <laughs> right? Like, so, yeah, I think that's super cool because this is the first damage-dealing fighter archetype. You know, I mean, the fighter has always been sort of a wear it down, but never a burst. And so I, I like that this has a little burst. You always mixed fighter into something else so you could throw action surge on something that had a lot of burst damage. Right, right. But yeah, I, I will say this is this is a really cool archetype that like hunts down and confronts really evil creatures. And I just wish it were a ranger in some way. I Yeah, I hear you. It does feel very ranger-ish. Mm -hmm. But I will say... This is a fair competitor to the Battlemaster. If mm -hmm. I wanted to build a fighter, I would happily play this archetype because right now I don't think I could deal with playing a champion. I'd be bored. And the Eldritch Knight is not very good. Yeah. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is actually a viable alternative to the Battlemaster, which I appreciate. Yeah, and it gives some of the things that I really love about the Battlemaster, which is extra tool or skill proficiencies. Yeah. Because that's always been lacking with the fighter. It's yeah. just a dumb brute. Yep. And then there's the Inquisitive Rogue, which, of course, we really like simply because of the name. Uh, yes. <laughs> In Eberron, investigators, private eyes are called Inquisitives, and there are a bunch of them. So I totally think that Bahar, who was an Inquisitive for House Madani, would have played this archetype. Yeah, more so. He was an assassin, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think this would have fit him a little better. Totally. So you're consistently good at detecting lies. That's fine. Your wisdom insight checks uh, have a baseline that they don't drop below. And you can use your cunning action to use a new sneak attack ability called Insightful Fighting, which is really cool. You make an insight check against a creature that uses its deception check. And if you win, which you really should because you're a rogue. And there's not many creatures that are trained in deception. <laughs> right. Oh, Rakshasa's again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you succeed, you can use your sneak attack against that creature even if you don't meet the criteria for sneak attack and even if you have disadvantage. This is the only thing in the game that would let you sneak attack when you have disadvantage. Yeah. So now let's find all the ways to get disadvantage on the attack. <laughs> <laughs> Close your eyes, <laughs> lie down. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I still hit him where I want to hit him. No, I do like the idea that you're sizing up your enemy in the first round of combat and then afterwards you just know how to defeat him yeah i absolutely would have put this on that sherlock holmes build i put together right oh back. yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and it lasts for a minute so you're not you don't have to roll these opposed checks every single round well, you do have to roll it for each new enemy that you're engaging yes but right. honestly you should just focus on come on focus fire what yeah, are you doing exactly you're the, you're the rogue finish him <laughs> yeah <laughs> at higher levels you can detect magical deception and at level 17 your sneak attack damage increases by 2d6 which is nice which when you is, use insightful fighting Right, which you should really always be always using, be it. using it. So, yeah. I mean, that puts it at what? 12d6? A billion d6, I think. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just so many. Yeah, just like uh, borrow d6s it's, from your neighbor d6. Yeah, it's double fireball. Yeah. Is what <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's cool. I, I think it gives just enough of a boost to damage, but also gives you that super cool flavorful abilities. And we're always looking for more options for Rogue because we use it so often. Right. So. And, you know, look what Assassin gets at 17. Exactly. You know, it's really got to compete with Death Strike. Right. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to the Morning Glory campaign. Well, last session, the party came to an agreement with the dragons of the chamber that the dragons would give them the horde of Astaroth, the crazy silver rogue dragon, along with information about the Draconic Prophecy and information about the Dalkir, which Lou really wanted. Yeah, that, that <laughs> got thrown in at the last minute. That's right. Oh, and also Dalkir. It's <laughs> a classic negotiating tactic, right. right? Where you get those like those low-cost bonuses thrown in at the end. <laughs> it's like, oh, and upgrade my seat to first class, please? Oh, okay, fine, sir. Uh, please go away. It's like, okay, ma'am, we will give you information about Dalkir. <laughs> but the dragons, in return, want something that only non-dragons can provide which is they would like the party to break into the pit of five sorrows 
the prison of Tiamat, the horrible fiendish overlord who controls the hearts of dragons. Now, I've heard of this Pit of Five Sorrows before. Ah, yes. I believe that was episode one. Yeah. (laughs) Heist campaigns. We are now, yeah, it took us 39 episodes, but we have got back to the beginning. Right. So go back and listen to that one. We won't go into too much detail about the planning. And fair warning, we sound a lot more nervous during the entire time. I think we were actually drinking during that one. Uh, We had to, yeah. Yeah. And we haven't since because we're like, oh, we're 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 better. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so give the high-level sort of sales pitch for the Pit of Five Sorrows. So it is a maximum security prison for essentially a a god, right? The evil god of dragons. And it's specifically designed by dragons to keep out powerful dragons. Exactly. So the chamber, some of them have the knowledge of the dragons who helped design it uh, like a hundred thousand years ago right so they know the things that they just can't get around there are traps and guardians and persistent spells in effect that are going to prevent them from getting inside and the reason they need to get inside is they actually think that someone else is going to try to break in and free tiamat right and they want to reinforce the wards but they don't want to cause a panic so they want to need to get in they need to drop a, a relic the scale of orlana strix which is one of the uh, dragon deities that will, the dragon deity of knowledge that will uh, reinforce the wards when placed next to his shrine inside the prison. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> why was it outside of the prison? It was inside the prison. Why wasn't it outside? Why was the, why was the scale outside the prison in the first place? Oh, because it's just a powerful artifact. Oh, okay. Right. So, so they, they dug it up and they were like, yeah, okay, we got to. Yeah, we'll, we'll add this to the this shrine. On top. Yeah. Exactly. And also MacGuffin. Right. I, that's what we're really getting at. Yeah. <laughs> Put the MacGuffin in its MacGuffin holder. That's right. So Orlana Strix was the dragon who discovered the Draconic prophecy that said there needs to be a massive sacrifice of uh, all the Coatl, and that will create essentially the Silver Flame. Ah, uh, okay. Right. Which is why his shrine is directly right next to the Pit of Five Sorrows. Gotcha. <laughs> so the dragons obviously can't get inside. They need powerful humanoids to go inside who they think will not betray them and you seem to fit the bill so there's that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this session was basically it was an oceans 11 type planning session caper planning throwing the you know all the maps and scrolls out on the table and Mm -hmm. starting to kick our options around and making knowledge checks and different things to see what options were ways to overcome traps or bypass them or path of least resistance you know i mean all types of stuff yeah the week before i had sent out a pdf and a ton of information basically everything the dragons were giving the party about the pit of five sorrows i emailed to all the players saying okay you have this take a look at all of it start coming up with a plan now because we're going to do it in session but we're going to do it pretty quickly yeah and then when they showed up i basically said okay you know You've got two hours, two real-time hours to figure out what you're going to do. And then after that, we're going. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, I'm not trying to screw you guys over. Once they were there, I instituted a mechanic where they sort of had flashbacks. Yeah, the fate chips. Exactly. I gave each one a poker chip and said, okay, one time during this session, you can cash it in and say, you know what? We prepared for this situation. Let's do a flashback. Here's what we actually did. Right. And I think that ended up working really well in terms of not having to plan uh, a massive heist for like four sessions and then just have it go awry with one roll oh because that's exactly what happened (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and uh i mean we talked about the value of those fate ships at length in episode one Mm -hmm. so i don't want to rehash that but right and we've got all the pdfs you can see all the information about the pit of five stars if you want to use it yourself right um what i thought was really interesting is because it was over email you know not every player was equally engaged in the email planning and then when we got to the session and, and you know naturally everyone was sort of looking at it from their perspective of hey here are my abilities here's some things that i could do and the player who plays bastion the warforged monk wasn't super active on the email and when we got in there he goes have you guys realized that i run like 180 feet per second (laughs) (laughs) um why don't we just bypass all this with speed and and then the other because the other part was you gave us the map and then we completely underestimated what would 
happen if the squares weren't five foot squares but were instead 20 foot squares right <laughs> right we like totally misjudged the scale yeah the the map was a quarter mile on each side right <laughs> yeah so that was interesting <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and that, that ended up being our our new approach was let's make everybody small enough to get carried and then have him run yeah it worked really well actually yeah it, it did i mean until it didn't <laughs> until we had we we ended up besieged inside our own prison <laughs> so i will say one thing that i really liked about this is that i got to use the bag of holding anti-magic field trick that so explain that one <laughs> so people talk about it it's usually on the threads about where is like the craziest or best place a lich can hide their phylactery yeah this is the <laughs> the magical item paradox right exactly right? so you take a bag of holding and you walk into an anti-magic field and now it's a regular bag put something in the bag walk outside the anti-magic field where did that object go? Well, it's still in the bag, but you can't get to it because when you reach inside the bag of holding, you reach into the extra dimensional space. Yeah, it's like sewn into the lining between the bag and the extra dimensional space. Somewhere, right? Yeah. right? But you can't check the bag anywhere to find it. Yep. You just really need to make sure that the bag doesn't get uh, broken or, right. or pierced because then everything in the extra dimensional space pops out. But who knows, who knows what, what happens, happens to the, the bag? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the only thing you need to do to get it back is walk back in, into an anti-magic field. But who would necessarily think to do that right. when you're looking for something? You right. just invert a bag of holding, everything pops out, and you go, oh, nothing there, and that's it. Yep, yep. So that's actually how the party was smuggled into the Pit of Five Sorrows, was the dragons took dragon-sized bags of holding, stuck them in anti-magic fields, made you hide inside with bottles of air, and said, trust us, we'll probably let you out. Yeah, <laughs> good start to our relationship. Yeah, perfectly fine. <laughs> and we'll find out what happened once we got inside next week. All right, so we got a listener question about maps. We did. Andre, one of our listeners, sent us an email, said, hey, I don't think you've talked about maps before. And we thought, well, we had a big map for the <laughs> Pit of Five Sorrows. <laughs> Let's talk about maps. Yeah. So there's kind of three maps that I think of in general for RPGs. You've got your world maps, mm -hmm. right? your continents, your major land areas. Mm-hmm. You've got your location maps, so like your cities, your dungeons, your immediate locales. And then you've got your battle maps, which is where the tactical combat is going to take place. And they're all really different, serve very different purposes, and you need different skills to create each kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely one of those situations where it totally depends on the group and the DM as to what you want to do. Because there's not really a right or wrong way. Yeah, whatever you guys enjoy, here just different ways you can try once you know what you want to do right so start with world maps we're playing in eberron mm -hmm. which has lots of published maps which was awesome which are beautiful and detailed and i didn't even look at all of them <laughs> like, <laughs> i like going back through the recaps i'm now looking at the map of arganesson and mm -hmm. i'm like man i should have looked at this at about the time we were in arganesson because <laughs> this is like really cool where all this stuff fits together and, and you had that map because the dragons gave you a map of Arganesson. you did yeah. yeah and i had no time <laughs> so i didn't look i was that player i mean i will say so we played this game for three years it was great because i just printed out a map of the location that the party was in whenever they got there like one one print right and then i just kept it and if they looked at it fine and if they didn't look at it also fine every once in a while they'd like pull it out and be like oh wait let's reference exactly where we are yeah you know but it was so low entry to have a really cool prop for so long yeah and then you get all these advantages with a published map of there's already all these proper nouns on it mm -hmm. right there's already these geographic features there's already the different biomes there's nations there's cities you can fill in what all of them mean but someone's already done that level of thinking for you right however it is really hard to change canon when you're stuck with a map that says like this city is here right so i have some pretty decent photoshop skills so sometimes i would just erase a name oh really <laughs> yeah type in a new one yeah <laughs> move a lake right it <laughs> <laughs> worked really well what if you want to create your own world map though that's a lot more complicated I often find myself trying to steal other people's world maps yeah, for my the, campaigns. Yeah. You know, and I, there are just, a bunch out there that people are like, hey, use this. Is it RPG Maps? Is that the subreddit that's got a bunch of them? Uh, I think there's our world building, which has a lot of Oh, yeah, maps that one has well. a lot too. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm always Google image searching for maps that don't have 
proper nouns on them yet. <laughs> but a couple quick ways to create a map from scratch if you want. Uh, coffee stain. Yeah, that works. Right, You spill some coffee and there's your landmass. Yep. Yeah. Or take a real map of any location and just invert the land in the water. Boom, done. Map. Yeah, especially if you want a lake in the middle. <laughs> or you could pick an archipelago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and truthfully, any real life landmass, if you just kind of blur the edges, no one's going to recognize it anyway. Right? Yeah. I mean, you could easily take a map of Europe and just redraw it by hand and mm -hmm. no one's going to recognize that it's Europe. Yeah, it's what Tolkien did. That, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> there are also a ton of online fractal world builders that'll just make a map for you. Right. But the shape of the map is not the only thing you need to worry about, right? We also need to actually fill in some of the details. Oh, I know. So many names. And in general, I would say, unless you have a geologist, like a person who is a geologist, one of your players, don't worry too much about whether this map makes sense realistically. Like deserts are often on the other sides of mountains because the clouds don't travel over them. But yeah. you know, uh, uh, that uh, drives me nuts, though. Really, do you notice continental divides and things like that? And I, why are the rivers running this way? Well, it's not. It's not that I notice those kinds of details. It's mm -hmm. just like when I see a map where like a river bisects a continent. I'm like, that's not how rivers work. <laughs> like rivers don't flow in. Maybe it's a magical river. Yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> my my verisimilitude. <laughs> so this is why we often just suggest, unless you are in fact a geologist, stealing someone else's map. Of course, it's not just the rivers or the bodies of water. Are the biomes accurate? Where does a swamp go? Where do the people live? And I mean, again, it doesn't have to be super real world accurate, but mm -hmm. you do need to apply a little bit of logic. Swamps are going to be near rivers or near marshes they're not just gonna randomly spring up out of nowhere or if they do think about why that happens mm -hmm. right what's going on underneath that swamp that has caused it to exist in the middle of an otherwise fertile plain right if you have a city like so many fantasy settings often do smack in the middle of the desert how how <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there's a natural aquifer under there somewhere <laughs> right 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 <laughs> There's a reason that all of the ancient civilizations on Earth started near rivers. Right. And that's that's the big thing for me is that your civilizations need to be on water. Cities don't really flourish without natural water, even in most fantasy settings, even in the highest fantasy settings, right? I mean, even Forgotten Realms, like mm -hmm. the biggest cities are all coastal. And, you know, you also want the opportunity for your players to fall in. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's that. It's water adventures. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless it's a flying city. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But then again, if you introduce a, a flying city in the first act, it must crash to the ground in the third. Obviously. <laughs> it's Chekhov's city. <laughs> Chekhov's helicarrier. <laughs> but think of that level of detail that you want as well. So sometimes when I draw a map, I'll draw the nations and I'll draw the capitals. Mm -hmm. And that way I'm leaving lots of blank space to populate as I need it versus in a published setting, they're going to put as much information on the map as they can cram in because... Those are all proper nouns that I can sell. I can put a supplement about building out that world or building out that nation or building out that continent. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind that the more flexibility you want in building your world in front of your players, you need more blank space on your map. And this touches a little bit on world building, but you don't necessarily need your entire map completed. No. <laughs> off the bat. You know, yeah. maybe like a high level world map sure label the continents yeah yeah <laughs> orcs to the north humans to the south that's right cool <laughs> tundra orcs obviously yeah <laughs> fill out those details later oh no, no no the whole planet is below the equator oh perfect sense yeah i got gotcha. you yeah. so mm -hmm. the, the humans are south american the orcs are central mm -hmm. american mm -hmm. yeah makes perfect sense so, jungle orcs that's why they have green skin yeah uh, uh, camouflage yeah come on <laughs> And then there's also just the physical versus mental aspect, right? Is your map actually written and drawn on paper? Or is it just kind of consistent description that you're delivering to your group? Right. Orcs to the north, humans to the south. Which is what I basically did for the planet of Gontelgrim yeah, in, no map in our 40k game. Mm -hmm. right? I, I ripped the name off from a D&D &D adventure <laughs> from Out of the Abyss. It's the name of a dwarven city made that the name of the planet and then said basically orcs to the north humans to the south done what else do you need to know right and, yeah and you said okay well where are their lands other oh, to the east okay right and we had a ship capable of 
interplanetary flight. We could have gone to literally anywhere on the planet. We didn't because there was nothing of value there. That wasn't where the story was. Yeah, for story purposes, I you know kept you directed towards the the main theme. We had we had a goal, right? Yeah. And, our, and our characters had a goal, right? It wouldn't have behooved us to go to the other side of the world and ask you like what this continent looks like. Right. Exactly. Spoiler: There was no other continent. <laughs> it's just a gaping wound. It's, it's actually a water world. Yeah. <laughs> well, so why didn't it have huge hurricanes? Huh? Oh, it did. It did have, it a, did huge have a huge what hurricane. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so. That gets to another aspect of the physical versus mental, though, right? Which is that when I only described the world in general terms, you didn't feel the need to go explore. Okay, so this noble house has their lands to the east. Let's go to their lands, right? Because from a mental standpoint, there was really nothing out there. Mm. But if you had a physical map and I had divided up where each of the noble houses had their traditional lands and all of these things and put secondary cities and that sort of stuff, you might have said, okay, well, let's go do a little investigating here. Like, let's learn some more about these houses. Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want sort of more of a sandboxy kind of choose your own adventure, that gives the players a place to go to find adventure. If you're trying to draw them along a more focused plot at that point in the game, then you might want to take that away so they don't get distracted by shiny things that are drawn on with proper nouns. right? Right, yeah. A map is basically a series of arrows that point in all different directions that your players can go in. And if you want them to go in just one direction or just one of a few, maybe you don't want a really complicated thorough map. Yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's going to make the railroad feel a little less linear if you're not presenting other options and then closing them off. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, so. exactly. No, you don't want to go there. That's boring. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me explain what's important to you and you tell me if you have a reason to leave or to mm-hmm. go somewhere else, right? Right. And then we also have, there's a whole game built around the world map, right? There's a whole style of game called a hex crawl. Have you ever played one of these? A long time ago, yeah. When they were more, like, in fashion. Yeah. <laughs> when when they were basically all that there was. Yeah, well, they're <laughs> kind of coming back around now with That's the true. OSR and, and that sort of thing. So a hex crawl is basically a mostly blank map, traditionally drawn with hexes, but that the shape of the units isn't important. But mostly blank, where the idea is to go out and explore the blank space. And typically the GM either pre-plans what's in a hex as the players discover it, or rolls on a table to determine what's there when they move. Right. So instead of being presented with, you know, a fully fleshed out map or even like a rudimentary map of here's what the wilderness looks like, the characters have no idea because they're striking out into unknown territory. So they're literally drawing the map as they go. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like, you know, Baldur's Gate, the video game, mm-hmm. where you've got the fog of war, right? The darkness sort of on the edges of your screen. And as you walk in a direction, like it fills in, yeah. you know, but you can zoom out and see the whole map of the area. But any place you haven't been yet is still dark. Yeah, it's kind of that real time strategy game sort mm-hmm. of thing or mm-hmm. like civilization when you're doing the exploring. That's literally a hex crawl <laughs> civilization. <laughs> <laughs> so the next kind of map is location maps. And these focus on a much smaller area than a world map, one city, even just a single dungeon. Yeah, these are points of interest on your world map, if you will. And they tend to be a lot more detailed, because if a location is interesting enough that you need a map of it, then the point of having it is to help your players navigate. Usually, if players are just in a random town and they're stocking up on supplies or they're investigating, you're not going to draw the map as you go along because you know that's each individual building and most of those buildings just aren't going to be really that important right so again there's the dichotomy you can use published location maps or you can create your own at this level of detail i really like published location maps i've talked before about uh, in eberron i made ample use of sharn city of towers and city of stormreach which are really thorough books dedicated to single cities within the setting and that i just pulled from as I saw fit that had all these proper names all these maps if I wanted to use them and all these relationships that I could draw on but I I wasn't required to use it because I didn't need to hand out the maps or I could hand out like a a citywide map and that still lacks all of the detail and I can still make up lots of things as I go along so I don't use published maps for this very often I typically create my own and I start out pretty abstract 
if the city has a wall around it, I draw the wall. <laughs> and then if it has districts within the city, I draw the districts, right? So the docks are by the water. Except for the air docks. Uh, well, my mm. cities never have air docks. Oh. Yeah. It's a shame. So this is a personal policy. <laughs> you uh, land outside and you walk. Yeah, and you walk. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> the Duke's Tower is going to be in the center. The nobility and sort of upper class blocks are going to be here. The working class and slums are going to be over here. The commercial areas, the taverns and that sort of thing are going to be in this general area. And then as they go to different locations, right? Oh, we're trying to find a blacksmith. We're trying to go to a tavern. We're looking for people. I then just kind of start putting them on the map, Mm. right? So, okay, you know, somewhere in the docks, there's this guy, or you have a tavern that's over in this area, or you went to this temple in the temple district, right? And we can just kind of dot them on the map so that we don't lose track. But it's not really important where they are. There's not roads on the map, right? Until I absolutely need a road to be on the map. Because there's a battle. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's going to be a fight on that parade route. <laughs> Obviously. Why else is there a parade it's route? Chekhov's parade. <laughs> yeah. Either one works really well. I think of uh, the Tolis setting where most of it happens just inside one massive city. We talked about this a bit in uh, Urban Adventures. Mm-hmm. And... The map is just so detailed down to individual city blocks. If you want to play a very sandboxy type game, you just let your players go, hand them the map, because obviously every like street corner has a map of the city where you can buy one. Right. You know? <laughs> and then they just decide, do I want to go to this tavern? And if they get into a battle or, or something, well, you can see the shape of it. You just draw your battle map right then. Here we go. You're yeah, having but, a fight in an alley because you decided there's going to be a fight in an alley. Yeah, but that kind of locks you in, right? So now it can, yeah, yeah. and that's that's the other. I side. I mean, sandboxy is, games often do. Well, know? that's true. Yeah, the other kind of location-based map that you often run into is dungeon maps. It's not quite to the level of uh, a battle map because you're not fighting on it. But my favorite part about these is usually it's the players who are making them on their own. Yeah, like I will never say, "Hey, do you guys want to map this dungeon?" <laughs> Like if you didn't, that's your problem. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, lots of adventures have these dungeon maps in them, right? And they have numbered rooms because right. that's, you certainly don't hand them out. Yeah, it's yeah. it's easy for tracking encounters, mm-hmm. but then you also have your players kind of following along as they go, and and then you're like, all right, there's a hallway. All right, well, how many feet is this hallway? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. All right, there's this room. Well, what are the dimensions of this room? And at that point, you say, well. I don't know. Don't you remember being 14? Take out your graph paper <laughs> right? and yeah. start mapping this yeah. thing. <laughs> I struggle with that myself. Sometimes I'm just like, look, I'll draw the map for you because I'm looking at the map mm. and you guys are competent adventurers. Other times I'm just like, Ugh, whatever, dude, fine. Yeah. And, and of course it depends on the kind of session or game you're playing. Like if it's a hardcore dungeon crawl, you guys map it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It, it, that's totally on the type of game. Because if, if the dungeon is the highlight, then you've got to make the dungeon stand out right and that's sort of putting that emphasis on it helps right but if you're just trying to like get through the sewers to get to the next encounter eh. yeah all right you, so yeah so you spend 10 minutes in the sewer and now there's an encounter right <laughs> right but once you've determined your level of detail you want to have the details on your map make sense why is it that the things on the map are the way that they are yeah and i i love this whether you take a published adventure or your creating your map your own however you want to do this right if something is ruined how did it get ruined (laughs) if something is built a certain way it's entropy (laughs) yeah but there's a there's a difference in what a ruin looks like if it was weathered down Mm -hmm. over time versus it broke apart in an earthquake and you can tell that story through the map yeah fallen columns what direction did they fall and these are all things that characters who are perceptive or have those kinds of abilities can determine and that sort of storyline comes out and can be useful information for people if you think of this all the way through maybe it's not actually useful to the players to know all the columns you know the storm came from the west right i mean maybe that detail isn't important but if the columns are going in all different directions as they've fallen that's going to look strange. It's going to stand out to a player, even if they can't quite put their finger on it. Right. right. And then, then you're going to need to come up with a reason like why it is, why is it like that? Yeah, exactly. So I, think about what purpose does it serve, right? Why was this built in the first place? Why, why does this dungeon look the way it does? You know, is it natural caverns? Is it man-made construction? Is it 
abandoned dwarven mines, you know, these things are all going to be different. And then why have they changed, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. What's, what's different about them since they were designed? If your players are here and they're mapping something, they're probably not the original owners or inhabitants. No, no. (laughs) And if they are, these are the questions you should be posing to them, right? Right. Why is this doubling back? What purpose does this serve? Like, why is my dungeon a circle? (laughs) (laughs) If we went left or we went right, we ended up at the same point. Why is that? It represents entropy and inevitability, (laughs) obviously. It's the Aerobarus dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're actually creating these location maps, they're really easy to model off things in the real world. Obviously, if it's a city, you can take a look at any map of a real city. From the 1800s, yeah. That's perfect. Or now, whatever. The New York City uh, sewer map. Yeah. Or caves. Any sort of cave complex or old mines, those are totally reusable. Yeah, absolutely. And that answers your questions for you of, how they got created that way. Mm-hmm. And then all you have to think about is, well, what have I modified for game purposes and why did they get done that way? Think about what would a mine look like if it had been lived in by cobbles. <laughs> <laughs> also, the cave-in is your friend. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they can happen anytime. <laughs> yeah, that's what What's this way? Cave-in. And this way, also a cave-in. Oh, that way's clear. Uh, let me roll. Mm, cave-in. So how do you feel about a physical versus a mental map in this case? I mean, I love a physical map, but certainly I think there are times when these encounters are going to be unplanned or off the cuff or even just not worth the time it takes to create a map. Because, you know, every time that you are presenting a map in game, that is time that you spent prepping. Yeah. And I really like to cut down the amount of time that I spend prepping. That helps, yeah. But I also really like making and printing maps. Right. So it's it's always sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, for me, I like to take pre-existing maps and just use them right like i'll create my own encounters on that map but i don't want to go create a location map if i can avoid it right so which do you find more immersive at at this level of detail the physical maps or theater of the mind mental maps sort of in the same way that you run the risk of distraction with a physical map the same way as is for a world map i do still prefer a physical having it defined like that I think is helpful and, and useful and I like that as a player it, it lets me know that the GM is kind of being fair about it you know mm-hmm. like this was planned ahead of time and he's not just winging it too much which I don't always trust <laughs> <laughs> even though I do it excessively <laughs> don't worry we don't trust you. which is why I don't trust <laughs> other GMs so so I do like that from an immersion standpoint but also recognizing that if you start putting dozens of interesting sounding taverns i might just go bar hopping for a session right right how about you i think as a gm i like the physical map once i've done the prepping it sort of i feel takes some of the pressure off because players can then go well i'm gonna go here well i know what's there right. i know what happens there right you know but i'm also the type of GM who spends a lot of time either studying the lore or making up the lore and then just sort of remembering it like I remember history lessons Mm -hmm. and things like that. So those I I find pretty easy to just sort of rattle off, you know, oh, right, the bartender at this tavern is so-and-so, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is his personality, blah, blah, blah. As a player, I think there's certainly a, a freedom that I like about being able to imagine it in my head. And then sometimes, you know, especially... If the setting is someplace that is majestic or awe-inspiring or amazing, massive waterfalls or like a city made of gold, sometimes once you convert that to a map, it loses... Its luster a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, that's it looks kind of small. Right. <laughs> the city was so much bigger and more impressive in my mind. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. I will say, if I'm doing a dungeon crawl... I need to have the map because mm. it just makes it so much easier to keep track of what's going on. Right? Yeah. Having it defined and countered by number, I think that's just the easiest way to run that. I can't imagine doing that a different way. Yeah, I totally agree. And as a player, I'm definitely the kind of player who would say, no, we need to map this because I need to know if there's room for a secret room. Right. <laughs> yeah, I need to know if we're supposed to like put a bomb at this yeah, en- at this end of the hallway yeah if you're a nice gm you put all your secret rooms on the inside of the dungeon if you're if you're not you put them on the outside walls of the dungeon <laughs> well you think they made this thing a square yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're fighting a chaos cult right <laughs> all right so 
what happens when you drill all the way down to the battle map level? Same thing. It just depends on your level of detail. But you can find published battle maps if you'd like. I know that you went and, and pulled a bunch of them from the internet for Morning Glory. We often fought on these beautiful, large printed battle maps that you were taping together. <laughs> yeah, I would go out and find them and then using Photoshop, change the things that I needed, often sort of making them more enclosed so like things couldn't escape or adding certain terrain features. And sometimes a lot of these pre-printed battle maps have features on them like there'll be like a glowing rock in the middle of something because it was part of some published adventure and right. like that thing was there. And so I just sort of, I either edited it out or went, oh yeah, no, there's a glowing thing there too. Yeah. What will that be? What, what is this? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So that was always fun. And <laughs> I will say, so um, my fiance is a graphic designer uh, and I convinced her that it would be good to have a really nice printer so that she could print the things that she designs, look at them on actual paper and then decide if she wants to change things um it's also great for like 11 by 17 battle maps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great and i love that and the ink is so expensive <laughs> and i think she has used it like three times in two years yeah but i mean i appreciate the purchase i'm glad i'm glad <laughs> yes often half of my prep time was the session and the other half was i just want to make this map <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have this rolled up tube with me like on my back while I was on the subway right, right. coming to the yeah. session your map tube <laughs> <laughs> people look at me like oh you're an architect uh, why yes <laughs> yes I am an architect of dreams right <laughs> so one thing to keep in mind though is when you when you're using a published map like you said a lot of the tactical components are going to be fixed mm -hmm. so unless you're capable of editing it in photoshop or something like that you're going to have to design around these things right they're going to have to have a reason for being there or you kind of remove some of that immersion when you say okay so ignore that table that's not there that's mm -hmm. just ignore that that's just on the map <laughs> right it's and like, then if, it, if it's printed if the, that table gets destroyed you can't just wipe it off as a dry erase exactly it's just it's there and everyone has to pretend that it looks destroyed now. right so what about battle maps? Because a lot of time, I mean, whether you pre-print your map, found it online, designed it yourself, or you break out the battle map when it's time for combat and you're drawing on with a dry erase marker, mm -hmm. which do you prefer? So this was sort of tough for me playing Morning Glory because since I often prepared battle maps ahead of time, if I was drawing out a map on a battle mat, then all of you guys knew, oh, well, he didn't prep this one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a bit of a... Or it was an extremely exotic kind of encounter that mm, mm -hmm. didn't lend itself to... That's true. Or sometimes it was a bit of a reward for you guys because you guys were able to like set the stage. If you plan an ambush somewhere, obviously, like I wasn't prepared for that. Right. And then you guys sort of got to dictate the terrain, which yep. is very handy when we just write it on. Right. I'm not a particularly skilled artist, so when I draw battle mats like on a battle mat it is very rudimentary oh yeah and <laughs> Me too. it's basically theater of the mind yeah <laughs> right this uh these are these are pointy sticks right. over here this is a marsh yeah green dots it's a marsh <laughs> right. just go with it the blue is the land obviously right <laughs> <laughs> or uh do we really only have a black marker all right well labels yep <laughs> <laughs> this circle is a marsh <laughs> but once all those features were on and we were like in game and like taking turns, I feel like very quickly people stopped noticing that it wasn't like a pretty map. Yeah, I mean, I think a pre-printed map gives you that immersion, mm -hmm. right? Especially the more tailored it is to the scenario you're running. But I have just, I like the flexibility of a battle map. First of all, because I can adjust it during the fight, mm -hmm. right? So if things happen that change the tactical terrain of a fight i can reflect that immediately yeah it's nice to be able to go well this is on fire now yeah and this is on you're on fire right <laughs> but it also gives me a way to ramp up or ramp down the difficulty on the fly it gives me one more lever that i can pull right if we're going into an encounter that i expect it to be very difficult and you guys are already extremely weak 
it's still going to be difficult, but I, I can make sure I don't wipe you, right? right? Maybe it's not a box canyon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe instead of the, you know, arrow slits that are set up for ambush, I just have walls, right? <laughs> right. You know, like I, I don't need to introduce those types of things, whereas that might have already been fixed on a pre-printed map. Mm-hmm. Maybe dwarves came in later and enlarged the tunnels in this mine to yeah. medium humanoid 15, size. 15 feet instead right. of five, yeah. <laughs> the kobolds moved in later. Right. <laughs> And then keeping in mind that there's just a limitation of perspective because it's a, you know, your maps are typically Mm two-dimensional top-down view. It's never going to be perfect, in my opinion. So I feel like I'm not losing as much by just drawing it with markers instead of all of that detail. So what about going in the total opposite direction? You know, those premium dungeon building products. Like the, like Dwarven Forge. Yeah. (laughs) Dungeon Dungeon tiles. tiles, Yeah. yeah. I, I mean... God bless the people who can use them and who have the afford them. Yeah, the yeah. resources to buy them, to paint them, to store them, to dig them out every week and build them. I don't have the patience or the time or the money. <sighs> so, you know, I would love to play in that kind of game. I think that would be super cool. And when I see pictures posted on Reddit or posted on Twitter of like these elaborate set piece uh, environments that people have built for their minis, like I think that's awesome. I'm like, we're using space marines <laughs> and and I'm the ultramarine. Yeah, and like the orcs are terminators. <laughs> you know, I mean like we're we're also splashing in some Lord of the Rings figures. So it's not, it's not like we're we're super immersed in our games and we're never going to be. So it's tough for me to do that, but I would love to play in that kind of game. I think it's great if you've got the ability. Yeah, there's a, a lot that you need before you're able to do that. I mean, you need the minis. You need the minis to start yeah. off. Yeah. You know? And so if you if you don't have those, why even bother with battle maps in the right. first place? Yep. You know, just all do it all through to the mind. Well, hang on. So we have done battle maps without minis. We've where we've drawn the letter of your character's name on the map in in a few different games. That's true. It's less tactical. <laughs> it's yes. Although in general, I think sometimes we favor maps just because many of our players are very tactical. Yeah. Um, even though we wouldn't, we don't necessarily need to be, but sometimes it's very much like, no, wait, exactly. How many feet away are we from yeah, this? Yeah. You know? we, we start theater of the mind. And it's like, all right, let me just draw it. Right. Someone's <laughs> going to build some sort of yeah. contraption and we need to know how big the burst template's going to be. Right. Yeah. yeah. But there are a lot of things that you sort of need before you can do these large productions, which is space, you know, is the place that you live in large enough? We're, we're in New York city. It's so. the place that you game in large yeah, enough, right? Can exactly. you, can you represent a full dungeon on the, the size of table that you use yeah or does everything have to be like a 20 by 20 foot tower yeah exactly (laughs) i was in a game a 4e game five or six years ago where the gm uh, was a manager at uh, kinko's okay and so he would print all his maps at work it was oh they were so big and so beautiful so we'd come in and he had the whole table already the map was like laid out and he had like this acrylic over the top so we could like draw on it and he had all the dungeon tiles and so sometimes he would just sort of lay them out. And it was, I still I still can picture battles now happening. And it is still in my memory really immersive. Yeah. Is it necessary? No, because I still feel that way about other battles that we ran that didn't have those at all. Or right. other games that were just totally theater of the mind. Right. But if you can afford that and you have the time for that you're never going to have your players not like it, you know? That's true, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I started with a wargaming background, so there is sort of a visceral connection to dozens of minis on the map and like <laughs> and that fun of like, I move my mini into that mini and that mini falls over, <laughs> right? Like, and, and seeing like what was a crowded map slowly thinning out, right? I mean, it gives you that kind of connection to progress and, and everything so I, I get that yeah. yeah but just make sure you don't favor it over story you know like if right. it takes you half an hour to set up the map it's probably not worth it right <laughs> you know unless you it, you're doing it at your place and you can set it up ahead of time it, it, right but right. you're just losing time when you could be telling a story exactly so we should touch briefly on theater of the mind before we run too long because that's the alternative to battle map right instead of mapping it at all we'll just kind of keep it in our heads and describe it Mm -hmm. and it's the default for a fifth edition it is yeah one thing to keep in mind is it is extremely focused on the narrative Mm -hmm. as a gm you have to narrate things well consistently and you have to make sure you're highlighting the right things so that your players are keeping track of 
spatial relationships and sort of rough ideas of what things look like and are able to stay immersed. There's a fair amount of math. Sometimes, I've yeah. noticed, yeah. you know, how many feet away are we? Right. Okay, I run up. How many feet? Okay, that means that we're now 45 feet, but you're 55 feet. Okay. Yeah, so you've got to be ready to wave that off mm-hmm. or keep lots of numbers. Right, just head. you get there. Yeah, exactly. You get halfway there. Yeah, how far away is he? Uh, close enough. Well, hang on. What do you want to do? Charge? Yeah, you can get there. <laughs> right. right. Certain game systems lend themselves well to this. Like, I, it's just weird saying this, but dark heresy second edition you can just go you're in short range yeah right yeah. now you're point blank right and some games just have range bands yeah right like uh 13th age for example just does range bands uh star wars mm-hmm. the fantasy flight version just range bands so those kind of lend themselves to not having tactical battle mats anyway but it also means that if your players are going to notice something you either need to bring it up when they make a check or you need to mention it ahead of time I think that depends totally on your players because that, that for some certain players that are looking for those things, I agree. For others, it frees them from being locked into what they see, right? And so I'm imagining a room with a chandelier. I can now say, hey, is there a chandelier, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if I'm looking in a ballroom and there's not a chandelier on the map, I'm wondering, like, where it's is on the, the chandelier? It's on the ceiling. It's that's why it's not on the map. I, I know. <laughs> it's still it's still useful. It should be there. There's probably multiple, but I don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. So what do I do with yeah, that? It's, right? it's hard to sort of go halfway. Exactly. You know, if there's a map, then if it's not there, it's not there. Exactly. And it, it breaks verisimilitude if even if you've drawn out a battle map, if you are doing the style of game where, okay, tell me what you see, like or use something in the environment. Then to like draw in a baseball bat or you know a cupboard or something that right. you're using for cover, that is like oh wait so things are magically appearing on the map. Yeah, exactly. But in theater of the mind, you say like, oh yeah, I know you look to your left and you see a cupboard. Yeah, you're in a dining room. There's mm-hmm. a table flipped over. I get behind it. Right. I <laughs> right. grab some dishes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's totally that action movie moment of like wherever the hero dives is going to be into cover, right? right? Like the cover is just going to be something that's logically there. Even if I haven't seen that filing cabinet get blown up and knocked over. It's a bulletproof filing cabinet. It's a, it's a nuclear proof refrigerator. It's the only kind I buy. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but I think the overall takeaway is that if you have very drilled in tactical type of players, be careful with theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. Your players might be open to it in certain systems but if their expectation is a is a map to plan their combat around it's probably a good idea to give them a map if you don't usually use maps in general on any of these levels i highly recommend trying it out give some to your players see what happens yeah even if they're just props and they're easy to take away yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) i'll just what happened well i you got fireballed and it burnt yeah (laughs) all right do you hear that ishan that is the sound of all my scrolls going off at the same time. It must be time to move on to the character creation forge then. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. So this week we promised you a Pathfinder in the Character Creation Forge. So the Pathfinder outside of Paizo's setting is sort of the wilderness survivalist. He's the guide, the one who's in charge of exploring and making those maps, if you will. The one who can get the party where they need to go and then probably along the way proves to be very useful and says, you know what? think i'm gonna join you yeah this is uh sort of a good-natured kind of character right he's kind of got a good of all sort of mentality or at least a good heart yeah maybe they're gruff have a gruff exterior but they always come through when you need them right right yeah the pathfinder is not the one who like takes you out into the waste leaves you to die and takes your stuff right right he's kind of like the the ranger of the night's watch yeah if you will Mm -hmm. from game of thrones so this is an interesting build it is not where I thought I was going with it. <laughs> so it is Ranger 10, Bard 10. <laughs> Two things here. First, taking Ranger past one. A bit odd for me, yeah. I, I... And then Ranger Bard. A bit mad. Uh, yeah, you're mm-hmm. going to need some decks. You're going to need some con. You're going to need some charisma. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, 
Aragorn, the quintessential ranger, was originally brought on as Strider, who is a pathfinder, right? Right. The first half of Lord of the Rings is basically Aragorn going, well, I know where we're supposed to go. Let me show you where you're supposed to go and keep all of you from dying. Exactly. And if there was a tale teller in Lord of the Rings, I would say certainly Aragorn. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense to have the singing performing for a supper kind of bard build, but definitely from a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Around the campfire. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, and the morale maintainer right kind of role of the bard right mm-hmm. so a lot of that utility that the bard gets from bardic inspiration comes through as encouraging words as you know that inspiring leadership kind of thing where your party is safe because you are being led by this pathfinder right i think of the inspiration dice in this instance more as the pathfinder making sure like fixing all the party's mistakes yeah exactly you know you're about to step on uh that leaf and it sticks his bow under your foot, and right. so you don't. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you know, step on that trap. <laughs> right. You're about to hit the tripwire. Right. <laughs> or shut up, there's goblins around. Right. Right. <laughs> or looks like he's about to shoot you in the face, and the arrow goes over your shoulder. Into kills the, the goblin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about the mechanics here. We've got the ranger, which gives you the three survival explorer tier abilities. Natural Explorer, Primeval Awareness, and Landstride. Mm-hmm. We've talked about those a little bit before. Natural Explorer gives you a bunch of advantages when you're moving through wilderness. Primeval Awareness gives you sort of a sense of what's around you when you're in natural environments. And Landstride is boring. And Landstride is ripped off from the Druid, but you know it exists, and so <laughs> I felt that it was necessary. <laughs> you also get all of your Ranger spells, which usually are kind of lackluster, but you get Pass Without Trace. Yep which totally ups the party stealth by a full 10. Right. And you also get hide in plain sight as your 10th level ability. Yeah. Which is... It gives you... Yeah, but it gives you that kind of scout thing. Yeah, you know? it's true as long as you don't move. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like he's the kind who's going to hide in plain sight That's as, true. You keep as watch. keeping watch. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, he gets into the tree, blends in. Nobody even knows he's there when they mm-hmm. wake up for the next watch, right? And then we get Bard. Which I would splash throughout, right? I wouldn't go Ranger 10, Bard 10. No, uh, agree. Probably Ranger 5 to get extra attack. Yeah, so the challenge of this build is the Bard is going to give you expertise in survival. Right. Which doesn't come until 3rd level. So maybe 8. Yeah. I guess you could do Ranger 1, Bard 3, yeah, but then you're you're missing your yeah, your yeah. extra attack. It's so late. So although when does the bard get the extra attack? Six. And yeah, going so bard level six seven, yeah. doesn't feel a lot like a. You're not going to have much survivability. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, you're going to be late to expertise. But maybe natural explorer and primeval awareness will keep you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So the bard will get expertise, which you can use for survival, and then another skill. Um, you'll get jack of all trades, which will help you for the skills you don't have trained. Yeah, because the Pathfinder is sort of above all a survivalist. They're able to do anything in a pinch. Right. You also get that combat inspiration. Yeah, which gives you more uses for your bardic inspiration. Mm -hmm. You can not only prevent the party from getting into trouble, but you can actually make them better at what they do. Yeah, (laughs) weird. (laughs) And then the bard gets a bunch of utility spells as a bard, Mm. right? Some of them you kind of got to reflavor, but should be fine yeah in general i would steer away from the social type spells right you know is suggestion really that important out in the wilderness Mm. Uh, well i mean the flip side is if you're going to be negotiating with the various tribes of monstrous humanoids or that sort of thing right if that's your job as a pathfinder Um, i think you mean humanoids Uh, you're right sorry that was that was non-monstrous-ist of me yes Yes. (laughs) (laughs) non-monstrous If they're if they're going to be that sort of liaison to tribes that aren't, you know, that that will remain on the fringes, maybe some of that makes sense, but probably not. <laughs> yeah, but that is the beauty of the bard is that it is so versatile; it can basically be whatever you want it to be. Right. One thing you are overlapping on is extra attack. So at six level, the College of Valor bard gets an extra attack. Unfortunately you'll gain that from ranger anyway so it's not a great thing but i think the rest of it's worth it 
So this is one of those builds that doesn't require feeds to be effective, but there are a lot of them that really help with the flavor and are very useful. And I think the main one is Keen Mind, which isn't something that we often recommend. Oh, hang on, that one fits the flavor, but I don't know about how useful it is. Okay, you always know which way is north. Yeah, and you know you the know number of hours left in the day. That's right, because you probably don't have a watch, although if you're in a setting with watches, uh... Yeah, and you can remember conversations. <laughs> you can remember anything you've seen or heard within the last month. Okay. Which is a nice little ability to be like, uh, GM, I remember this. Right. Well, my character remembers it. Tell what me. What was it? Yeah. Right, verbatim. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, agreed. I mean, it is certainly not on a recommended list for very many builds. I think the only thing we've ever said should take key in mind was the Sherlock Holmes build. Right. Yeah. And again, that was a flavor call. <laughs> right. Well, it gives, so it gives plus one intelligence, which is just kind of wasted on this. It is. On this yeah. build. So start with an intelligence of nine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good, good for odd number intelligence if you're going to take key in mind. Yeah. Observant, though, is a really powerful feet it mm -hmm. gives you plus five to your passive perception yeah and it lets you what read lips or something uh yeah you can read lips yeah so mm -hmm. which which is i mean that is kind of cool is your, useful. again for that pathfinder with strange societies and stuff you might not want to enter the orc encampment but you might want to observe what's going Ooh, on here's what i like along with keen mind right you don't speak orcish but you can read lips, <laughs> you can read lips. and you can remember exactly what the they way they're, said. yeah. And then I'll so find you just, somebody who speaks uh -huh, And then just repeat it back to them verbatim. Right. <laughs> three weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> it seems improbable. <laughs> but also awesome. Awesome. And then Skulker is another kind of weird one. It gives you some flexibility around hiding. You can hide in a lightly obscured terrain, kind of like a wood elf. Uh, and if you miss with an attack while you're hidden, you stay hidden. But, you know, don't miss. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you also get, you avoid disadvantage on perception checks when you're in dim light, assuming you weren't already a half-elf or... Anything but a human, human or a dragonborn. Or halfling. Oh, do they not get it either? I don't think so. Halflings are terrible. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, hey, it's not a big deal. One way or the other. All right. So how does your rugged frontiers person become a ranger bard? See, I think my rugged frontiers person is an outcast. Mm. So he doesn't want to be a gruff survivalist loner. He's been forced into it. He had a choice of become a pathfinder or die. And he chose to become a pathfinder. So when he, when he finds a group that needs him and is on a noble cause, he sees an opportunity to re-ingratiate himself with society. So... He wants to do everything he can to help that party. What have you got? She's a courier. Oh. I think like uh, Pony Express. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I like that. Or uh, in Eberron, uh, House Orion, right? they uh, deliver the mail. Yeah, but they use okay. teleporting, which is just not as they cool. They do, yeah, but lower level, you don't have to have the dragon mark in order to be part of the house. Oh, okay. Right? So if you're lower level or you just don't happen to have the dragon mark, you're not teleporting. you got to do it the right way. I love I love fantasy mailman. I think that's like, <laughs> like I will get it there, sir, that's no right. matter the cost. <laughs> it's a bit difficult. I might need to kill some people in order to deliver this mail, but I will. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and let me tell you about it. Have a seat. Have a seat. I got right. some great stories. <laughs> oh, they're on about uh, Utah. I was cruising past Promontory Point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think and that, that one's cool because that fits in a lot of non-fantasy settings as well. So yeah. if you're on one of those sort of uh, fringier D&D settings where it's not true fantasy, <laughs> that, that works really well. I also like it as a way to introduce the character sort of in the middle of the game is a courier who delivers yep. an important missive. Message, sir. Front, yeah, <laughs> from the front or even to one of the party members. Right. You know, and then gets to storytelling. Oh, how did you even get this here past the lines? Oh, you know, it was, it was pretty simple. I just, you know, hid from the orcs, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I cast a few spells, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I just consider myself a competent player character, so yeah. it really wasn't that hard. I'm, I'm kind of the star of my own story. I'm good at everything. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what the orcs said. I don't know what it means. Yeah. Did any of you speak orcish? <laughs> really handy right now. All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So we do technically have a five-star review this week, though it is 
a bit bending of the rules. So we usually ask for five-star reviews because it helps new listeners find us. And that's sort of, we appreciate the kind words and the feedback, Mm -hmm. but helping new people find the show is sort of the benefit of that. One of our listeners, Andre, who actually suggested the topic for this week, sent us a 5.25 star review. So I figured I had to read it since it was technically higher than any review we've ever received. I I agree. But he doesn't use iTunes or Stitcher, so <laughs> which I also don't blame him for not using iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> so I will I will read this 5.25 star review. I don't use iTunes or Stitcher, but did want to send her a review of the show. There are a lot of D&D actual play podcasts and very few get down to the topics of all aspects of tabletop gaming. Of these select few, I have found you guys to be the best. Your different perspectives on topics as well as laid-back approach to the game allows a very solid entry point for listening for old and new gamers alike. Keep up the great work. Thank you for the lovely kind words, Andre, and the extra quarter of a star. Yeah, yeah. Let this not become a competition where everyone who sends us an email tries to up the star count. <laughs> no, no, I'm okay with that. No, oh. <laughs> star inflation. Come on. <laughs> Social promotion, that's right. (laughs) So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We've got the next installment in our series on campaign settings. We'll be talking about the Deadlands Weird West setting for Savage Worlds. And in the character creation forge? We're building uh, an old AD&D kit, the Berserker Priest. Nice. (laughs) I'm so excited. Well, that's it for episode 39 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>